So this samroam, this composing, bringing attention to the present, this is the mind gets scattered out. You know, so you see outgoing energies, asavas and that, they, they go out and then they're composing, bringing the, bringing the attention to the center point. Axis mundi, here and now. <coughs> Uh, a few years ago, this was years ago when I was abbot at Chithurst, I, I find certain concepts suddenly kind of jump out at me. And it's probably because I'm ready for them at that time. So when I was at Chithurst, uh, before Amarvati, I got obsessed with the concept of the Axis Mundi. And uh, suddenly I was really interested in that, and I've never been interested in Asimundi before. <laughs> and, uh, and then there was a, a man that was at, worked for the Victorian Albert Museum. He used to come to Chitters sometimes and talk to me, and he was an authority on stupas. So I became kind of interested in stupas, because they kind of represent that axis mundi, you know, and it, Stupa always has this, this form of this heavy base and it, and it, and it points, you know, it, it, it kind of, uh, moves toward a, a fine point at the top. Like on the Byron's temple, you know, it's kind of this square temple base, kind of earthbound square brick, Bricks made, the bricks are all made out of earth, limestone floors, and so forth. And then it's, then it's moving up to the fine point at the top. And the sense of the stability of the earth stabilizing, grounding, heavy, uh, earth conditions and then the, the refined point at the top going into space. So these kind of images were reflected on and I kept applying it to, you know, from visual references to the reality of it as experience. <coughs> It's not just kind of becoming, a, you know, spend my life studying stupas and go to all the different important stupas in the world and have become a, write papers on all the stu. I went to a meeting at S uh, School of Oriental and Asian Studies in uh, London one time and they gave some of the most boring lectures on stupas and nitty gritty little details of this rare stupa in Nepal or this <laughs> uh, could hardly pay attention to it, it was so boring but then uh, and this is a stupa and then this axis mundi the center point, isn't it? The axis of the world or the center point. In terms of this present moment for each one of us. This is a reflection, you see, just to, to see that it applies to the reality of experience rather than is an abstract kind of knowledge that we learn about theories and ideas and art and all that as if it were something totally separate from the realities of this moment. You know, ancient stupas and the origin of the stupa and 
on and on like that we can investigate but not ever recognize or realize So then, by just keeping that in mind, like a, it kind of, for me, it was a kind of reoccurring refrain. You know, suddenly I'm this idea of axis mundi just, uh, you know, seems to be obsessing my mind, and then then taking that to the reality of it in terms of this moment. Mm. So this is uh, this uh, the axis mundi, the center point when we compose samruam entirely. Say samruam. This is a word I heard a lot, you know, from Lumpachan. So that you're returning to the source, the source, rather than getting whirled around on the wheel endlessly. Now, if you go to the still point, like in a wheel, the, the still point's in the center, and the wheel revolves, and as you get further away from the center, it gets more violent. And it just goes round and round. So then the liberation is through returning to the source, to the nothingness, the hole in the donut, the still point. Otherwise, you just get caught onto the wheel, <clears throat> get spun around with that. So there's always, in every moment, this potential, isn't it? Returning to the they call it returning to the source, my real home. So when you say composing, it doesn't mean kind of arranging your mind so in kind of so it some kind of attractive way, but returning to the source. And this is an act of love, too. It's, it's not like return to the source, a kind of imperative, a command that, you know, you're kind of heavy on yourself. To, to, uh, to make it happen and do it and, and they get the attitude, you know, the intention, the attitude is so, we take that into account in this life. What is your intention? So it's just a, because you don't like the wheel and you want to, or because you think I'm ordering you to return to the source, you're obeying the order. Although this is, this is, you know, how we can receive things, but this is where you trust yourself in the sense of trusting and in, in the make your intention pure. It's a, it's a, it's a loving intention, returning to the center, to my real home. The deathless. <coughs> Nibbana. The sense of my real home is a place you 
you can be yourself. You know, you at home, this idea of home. When you come home, then it's like you, you've been out wandering in the wilderness and you come home and you can just relax, be yourself. So when you come home, you don't feel you have to put on an act, be somebody, do something. You have to, unless you're an obsessive compulsive character. <laughs> as soon as you go home, you've got to clean it up and and uh, fuss about endlessly. <laughs> but see, the, the the ideal sense of home, you know, the sense of being in a place, you you, you all the masquerades, the Compulsions, obsessions—you—you're no longer—you're no longer caught in them. It's just being totally at ease in this, in one's real home. Like, like uh, the the uh, listening. I listened to the news this morning, and, and the uh, it's so horrible, you know, the the violence that's happening in the world now, and the kind of titanic level of uh, rearmaments and new, talking about nuclear weapons and. <clears throat> and then you hear 40 more Palestinians got slaughtered and 10 more Israelis and so far you wonder if it's a competition you know the most Palestinians have been killed the Israelis are because they're much more powerful they can <clears throat> they can kill more Palestinians at one time where Palestinians takes a while you know you have to kind of be a human bomb yourself to to be effective in slaughtering any Israelis <laughs> a hopeless situation <clears throat> well the the Jews think of the, their real home is this silly piece of 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 uh, real estate in the Middle East <laughs> they'll fight to the nail to get it back as God gave it to them and on and on like this, this is all the, the uh, conceptual proliferation, the illusions one holds around symbols. You know, the promised land, God, you know, coming back to the promised land, my real home. Is that this bit of land in the, in the Middle East? Israel or Palestine or is that what God promised them or is this are we I'm looking at it now in terms of the reality I don't know where my real home is in terms of ge geography uh, Seattle no I don't want to go live in Seattle yeah. <laughs> Thailand that's more of my uh, home to me than Seattle <laughs> or uh, England happy here or you know is, do I need to identify externally I don't feel I need to it's not a, that's not an emotional need that I have to feel I'm connected with the place. That the, 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 the planet itself is good enough, planet Earth. Whoever I am on this planet. Because the real home is this center point.
you know, the, this, uh, and the, the news is always about the awful things human beings are doing to each other. So there's these, these, uh, this Enron company that went bankrupt is so corrupt and sleazy, and then the accounting agency that overlooked, now they're up for, you know, court trials and whatnot, and all these kind of glitzy people, you know, successful in worldly terms, only fall off their pedestals, humiliated and condemned. And then we hear, you know, that I saw a political cartoon in The Guardian with uh, uh, Arafat and uh, Sharon embracing each other. So it's like it's dusk, you know, sun's going down, and Arafat and Yes, sir, Arafat and Ariel Sharon are, are embracing each other, have their arms around each other, and then, then uh, Ariel Sharon says, good night, yes, sir, and then Yasser says, good night, Ariel. <laughs> and then you look, and they each have a pistol pointed each, at each other's head. <laughs> so this... <laughs> So news is around uh, the meanness, nastiness uh, that we have as human beings, that we're capable of, you know, righteously murdering, slaughtering masses of people in the name of righteousness, in the same name of peace, like, like this war against terrorism. You know, the United States has become the biggest terrorist of the law. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, uh, it's rather ludicrous when you see how, and yet the sense of righteousness, and yet I'm sure every terrorist is, feels there, has this sense of their own, their right in some way. So you can't trust feeling right. That's not your really home. The real home is being right. <clears throat> because uh, that's a very, you know, powerful emotion, righteousness. But it's, it's also very deluding. You can commit the most atrocious acts in the name of, in the name of God, a righteous God, you know. <clears throat> So it's, it's not being right, but being centered, isn't it? It's returning home to the still point, the promised land. This is what God promised. We can always go home to the promised land every moment. And then we take that into, God promised me this plot of land. <laughs> And fight, you know, murder, destroy other people in the, in order to to keep this illusion of this land is mine. God promised it to us. He didn't. He didn't promise it to those ratty Palestinians. <clears throat> And then uh, this impression of this sadness and the, the kind of hopelessness of the that you feel when you when you hear the news or read the newspapers, you know, sense of like being an American, you know, you feel a sense of hopelessness, so blind, this enormous kind of superpower with is more powerful than any country has ever been, and it's loaded with money and power and weapons, sophisticated, super-duper nuclear-powered weapons. And as it's, uh, in the United States generally, you know, it's, it's, it's not a tyrannical country in itself. It holds to ideals. 
very idealistic society. But then with ideals you get very righteous too. God is on our side. We're fighting for truth, peace and democracy. can be a rallying cry to go and slaughter the enemy. Or those funny looking Taliban Al-Qaeda types <laughs> then being very you know, like just another Buddhist reflection last evening from the heart you know, it was a expression of gratitude and uh, joy for the life she's living and this is very moving thing to share some people think Dhammadasanas should be for noble truths dukkha samudhaya nirodhamaka list all the the 22 indrias and describe them in detail or and that can be domination but also in terms of say uh, sharing uh, gratitude or a sense of katanyu or a joyfulness that comes from having lived and been given support and encouraged in the practice <coughs> being a nun being a Buddhist nun Of course, it is daunting. You know, if you've never sat up on this high seat before, you know, for some people, it's the most terrifying thing you can do. I know some of you are anguishing throughout the day. <laughs> Who's going to do the next one? Some don't mind. Some feel anxious to get on the seat and tell you all about <coughs> their practice, and others <coughs> shudder with fear. So this is. You know, this is this is an individual. This is our karma, the way we are. So then, this I have this uh, this reflection that I've done uh, with detail for reflection, uh, which I will repeat if I can remember it. I sympathetically rejoice in the inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since beginningless time. A bit of a mouthful, isn't it? But it is from a Mahayana text, so it tends to, they tend to talk like that. <laughs> <clears throat> Uh, this, uh, this really resonated with me years ago because, uh, you know, in a monastic life, uh, you know, we were going through a pretty rough time here in Amravati, and uh, and it was such a, you know, everything seemed to be going wrong, and and uh, you know, there's a lot of blaming and and just. Uh, uh, Negativity all here, and so and being the, the kind of the focus of it myself <clears throat> brought up you know all kinds of anxiety and negativity in me. You know, this is a written the natural reaction when people start blaming you or or uh, or the thing that you kind of taken on. You know, you know, taken on this, when we moved to Amravati, I took it on, kind of. 
as a responsibility. It's my baby. So <laughs> and then knowing when I came here, you know, not really knowing what I was getting myself into, because I tend to be impulsive, and then uh, finding myself in this place and uh, feeling quite overwhelmed. And, and when it came to building the temple, taking that on, there was a lot of resistance and doubt about that. And, and then doing that, getting that going. <clears throat> so then it's because when negativity strikes the community, then it, uh, it really, you know, it's, it's insidious. We're so easily influenced by complaining, people who are complaining or who, who you know, the, the critics, the fault finders, you know, we're so used to that because we do it to ourselves. We're so prone to fault find with ourselves, to be so obsessed with, with one's own flaws or weaknesses, inabilities, that somebody starts talking like that or with the world you know the world seems to be falling apart it's you know in Israel and Afghanistan and Zimbabwe and, and on and on and endless wars strife poverty there's so many war orphans now you think God life is difficult enough for me you know I wasn't an orphan had a nice stable family life you know, good house and uh, parents that uh, lived together, loved each other, good education, um, lived in a society where I could pretty much choose what I wanted to do. You know, I grew up to just, you know, this idea of I'm free, I can do whatever I want. And wasn't limited, didn't have myriad options. And yet still, not an easy road to hold life itself even when they have the best supporting condition I think all these orphans you know these kids that don't you know, just going to be brought up in institutions are just left kind of out on the streets surviving so it gets really depressing the more you think about it the opulence and wealth of Western Europe and America, the misery of so many of the third world countries. And so then this, this reflection on Mudita, I sympathetically rejoice, sense of rejoicing in the inconceivably vast oceans of good actions. <coughs> Performed by conscious beings since beginningless time. This is this is really grand, inconceivably vast oceans of good actions. You know, that's a concept that is worth reflecting on: the good actions of conscious beings. Uh, and then, the, in the usual Mahana, Mahayana way of putting it inconceivably vast oceans is just so enormous the amount of good action performed by conscious beings since beginningless time <clears throat> so this this puts my this puts me in a frame of mind where I start yeah that's true you know how many good things good actions kindness, generosity and that are happening right now on this planet you know most of the people just you know titanic monsters trying to slaughter their enemy or this simple thing it doesn't have to be kind of magnanimous giving uh, huge amounts of money to uh, charity just the, the goodness of a mother caring for a child a good action you know, unselfish, 
good action performed by conscious beings. Conscious beings includes animals and it's not just human beings. It can include Devadas, the Deva realm. So there's inconceivably vast oceans of good action. That's quite, you know, you can't conceive it. It's so vast. You can't just pinpoint it. And yet, it's made up of maybe just little things that go unnoticed. You know, the, the good actions that, that conscious beings perform, that happen, you know, that are just, you know, nobody notices. Maybe the person performing them isn't even that aware of, of how good their action is. Because, we, you know, I can perform good actions, but then what, what the habit tends in my mind is to think of all the stupid things I've done during the day. <clears throat> Because that was pride, you know. They gave a lot of attention to the, the, the maybe not so skillful action of speech and make them build that into some big mountain and, and just bypass the good actions. So this, this, to me, this uplifts, this inspires the mind. This is an inspiring reflection. To rejoice, sympathetically rejoice in the goodness of others, in oneself. It lifts, you know, it reaches the heart. It, it gladdens the heart, gladdens my heart when I reflect in this way. And I'm just feeling pity and I feel my eyes moistening I'm so into this right now sympathetically rejoicing <laughs> as you keep that sustained attention on that you know the goodness It's so overwhelming, you know, it's like inconceivably vast oceans of good action. Not the just chance of some, you know, somebody doing something good once in a while. You know, our nature is really very good. So why are we here? Why do we, why do we, why do we come to Buddhist monastery? Why do I come? Why do I want to be a monk? I love the good, the truth, beauty, and everything. Now that's a reflection, not a kind of boasting statement. <laughs> but, it, it, but this is a, I, you know, I've also can be quite fascinated by the opposite. I'm not tempted, it doesn't mean I'm not tempted toward the more exciting uh, other possibilities. 
But what really, uh, you know, what really motivates me is this love of the good, truth, the Dhamma. So bringing that into consciousness, this is, this is, uh, and, and, and respecting that, respecting myself for that, seeing in terms of conventional language, and respecting yourself, self-respect. Because it's, to live this life, then you have to sacrifice a lot. Let go, limit, and And that's very inspiring to me, see you all, you know, voluntarily willing to sacrifice your freedom and, and opportunities that you would have if you weren't in, in this particular, in, in this kind of form. This, uh, when the, when the, in the Patimokas, I know, and I just sit there and see all these young men, middle-aged men now, they're getting older. They used to be, used to be young. <laughs> we started out young. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this was, uh, you know, to, uh, it's quite a, you know, to give up the sexuality, to be celibate, to give up your freedom to do what you want. Why? And I can only speak for myself because this is this this I really want to do. It's uh, I respect it and I and I love this opportunity. Grateful. So this is what resonates this center point, the emptiness and then the rejoicing comes out of that. <coughs> it's not just sentimental, you know, cover-up, but just noticing, beginning to admit my own goodness, which I've found quite difficult to do. Uh, because it's so easy to, to put all my motivations on some kind of mean, selfish level. You know, you're not really good, you know, you're just, you're just in this life for yourself, you know, or you're just, you know, I can, I can build a scenario of I'm in this life because, you know, couldn't face the real world. I was depressed with the, with the lay life. I found, you know, my, at the time I heard Dana, I was so disappointed with myself, mainly. And that could have been, you could, have, you could say, maybe you, you were depressed, tomato, and you had to run away from the real world in order to, you know, couldn't face it. This is one way of looking at it. And, you know, not to even deny that possibility, but there's also this. And this is what resonates with me, is this. Because what, what I realize is the 
love is the good. Truth, beauty, I love beauty and truth and honesty. I really love those things in myself and in others in the world around me. So I this sense of rejoicing in uh, sympathetically rejoicing in the inconceivably vast oceans of good actions performed by conscious beings since beginningless time. That inspires, that's an, that first it inspires. And then it kind of resonates in the heart. You know, you realize that's true. You know, most of the people, you know, all of you here in this temple right now, you know, all the good actions of your lives, you may not even be able to recollect them. You know, but even that's good in itself that you're not going around saying, I've performed so many good actions now. <laughs> I have the, the merit demerit mindset, you know. I should get a better rebirth in higher deva realm because I've done so many good actions is a, is not a particularly inspiring way to look at it to me. But uh, you know, it's it's recognizing, realizing what what goodness really is, the reality of it, and so to really. Be conscious, make it conscious. And don't think it's being, it'll inflate your ego or that it's being, you know, dangerous. You're going to overestimate yourself and get a, you know, you know, and, and not face the real you, which is all these other, you know, these faults and flaws. The real me is, you know, the, or is the real me the good? You know, I see most of my life has really been very good. So this is a reflection too. It inspires. This is a very positive uplifting and if you have any doubts about yourself give yourself the benefit of the doubts you know. <laughs> on the positive side And you recognize even in places like the Gaza Strip and, uh, you know, play, really miserable places that nobody in the world wants to be, not even the Palestinians, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, these refugee camps, the, the Israelis are bombarding and whatnot. They, these people that that have kind of been neglected nobody really is interested in them cares about them very much <clears throat> I remember growing up in the United States I remember when after the Second World War and the big Zionist move uh, Jews moving to Palestine and <clears throat> the tremendous guilt I think in in the world around what happened to the Jews during the Second World War, you know, the tremendous guilt and rage and anger about. So that uh, I remember seeing the photographs in Life magazine. There's a you know about twelve when the war ended. So then the 
they, uh, you know, just so that one only heard about the the, the Jews only. Then they're going back to the promised land, and one rejoiced in that. They'll have a land of their own, or they can they can be free, and they won't be persecuted and despised. And so then one felt very glad about that. But he didn't take into account nobody mentioned the Palestinians at the time. <laughs> so they were just totally like non-existing. Uh, I don't remember any reference to them. Like it was a, just an empty piece of land waiting to be taken over. That's what it seemed like as I remember. <clears throat> So then, but even in the, the Gaza Strip, isn't it? They, they, uh, how many good actions there? You know, just simple things like the mother-child relationship, the love that exchanges this natural, you know, Like a mother has to sacrifice herself a lot and to take care of a, an infant. They have to give up their own freedom and, and uh, desires to do what they want in order to, to, to nurture a helpless, you know, there's nothing more helpless than a human baby. You know, we're the most helpless of any creatures on this planet when we're born. And then you see a, a calf being born. It popped out of the womb and it immediately stands up on four legs. <laughs> a lot more. You know, that's pretty good, isn't it, compared to what happened like, to us when we're born. We can't do anything. Wah. <laughs> So just the goodness of that, of, of, of mothers, the love, and we can say, well that's their nature, you know, we can see it in a cynical way if you want, or, but not, putting it in the terms of, of, of goodness and how many through centuries, eons of time, does this goodness operates in the world, in spite of all the wars and the the, you know, and in in Gaza Strip, mothers have to, you know, their their lives are always right on the edge, and their children. It's pretty, you know, it's pretty horrific if you, you know, if you contemplate what it must be like for a Palestinian woman trying to survive and and take care of her family in a place that is continually on the edge of exploding into violence. I remember being and when I was a boy uh, in the church that I went to my parents took me to and in Seattle and they had parents were very devout Christians so I every, every Sunday I went to church as an altar boy and, <clears throat> and I remember you know there's always this 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 group of kind of Either widows, old maids, spinsters, or uh, women like that. Women that tend to be dismissed and forgotten. You know, they're not the glamorous, glitzy type females. 
and uh, uh, but then then I noticed that these were the people that held the church together basically <laughs> you know in so many small ways you know there's uh, over years, these, these women dedicated to polishing the brass, candle holders, the cross. They even so diligent, they, they would polish the other side of the cross that was facing the wall. You know, nobody saw that anyway. Then they, then there was always this food available, breakfasts being made and things being cleaned and maintained and supported and the kind of ongoing willingness and joy that they had in doing it. And yet, you know, they it hardly was it didn't wasn't very noticeable in itself. It wasn't like a grand display of 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 some big thing. It was just the continuous little things that that carried on this this give this goodness that never that they never expected to be acknowledged for it either. And they never demanded that anyone even notice. Or in, in one on a chat when I was abbot there, the, the old village women, these old ladies, <laughs> every day, you know, some of them, now most of them are dead, the ones that were there when I was there. Mayor home the she was she died last year, so these old women they come every day with their little tiffin carriers and their things that they bring preparing food and then you get some some wealthy person coming and giving a grand spread you know magnificent feed, but you know the ones you really depended on could count on were these old ladies from the village. They were there every day. You know, constant kind of of uh, backup. And yet not noticeable. On the one part, on the all night sit, they're the ones that sit up all night. Monks all over the place. The old ladies. I mean, it's goodness, isn't it? <laughs> really, goodness. That one is that 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 is a part of our lives. This basic goodness, you know, the people that come here, the goodness, the good intentions. Place like this draws that from people, and the people come here. They want to be good. You know, it it it, it reinforces. It supports goodness. The inconceivably vast oceans of good actions. Just reflect on that, you know. To when you, especially, it can be so depressing now when you hear all the things wrong. And when you know, when I first saw Chithurst House, it was a wreck. I remember going in. You know, the owners were invited us in one day. They didn't even want us to look at it. They said that the owner said it's you know, it's basically derelict. <clears throat> so we went in and he was right. <laughs> and uh it's a real Dickensian scene, you know, like almost like Miss Havisham in Great Expectations, you know, this kind of decaying house and these kind of shriveled up old people sitting around the fire them in the reception room in Chitters, you know. And the, the, do, the, the pale, sickly looking daughter. And everybody. <laughs> and everything covered in dust and decay. And, uh, but I was thrilled with the place. You know, I could, to me, I saw this 
the potential. This is, you know, the, the views, the situation is probably one of the best sites in West Sussex. You know, it's got this panorama of the South Downs. It's, it's, uh, you know, the house itself has great potential. It's a beautiful old house. You could kind of refurbish it, rebuild. <laughs> you have to rebuild it almost. So I got excited about the whole thing. Like, this is great, you know, really interested and challenging. Then when we moved in, one time a photographer came, professional photographer from Sweden, and he decided to take a series of photographs. So he took pictures. This is when all the, the dry rot was at it, you know, was being exposed. We started taking down the plaster and that, and as we started lifting things up, we found, you know, the most awful things revealed themselves. <laughs> It got worse and worse as you know as we we started stripping the walls and whatnot. And the, and then the, this photographer started taking pictures. He took pictures of the attic rooms and well, they were you know in black and white film. He sent these series of pictures of all the all the ugly things at Chithurst House, you know. All the nasty mold, the dry rot, the the uh, the the beams that were eaten away, the everything, you know, all the the little details. He sent a series of photographs in black and white, and then I started looking at those. And I, God, if I'd known it was like this, I'd never. Have <laughs> <laughs> and that you're looking looking at just what's wrong with my first impression. Although I'm mean, certainly aware that it was derelict, but but then the vision was there, and that the beauty, the possibility, the potential was more strong than the, than uh, I wasn't particularly put off by the all the things that were wrong with the place. But then when you get a a photo, photo series of photographs, and you you you're just looking at these photos, and oh god. Everybody became depressed when they looked at it. <laughs> Sense of hopeless despair, you know. What have we got ourselves into? You know, we've had, this is an albatross around our necks, somebody described it. And so, <laughs> you can look at it that way. Sometimes it seemed like that. But then the vision was there also, isn't it? The grander view that we need also to keep in mind, make conscious. Then within five years, most of it was done. And then I had to come here. And start another one. Uh, Chitter's house was just becoming a decent place to live where I had to leave. It was really hard to leave. I was very attached to it. <clears throat> I mean, it, it. But then the vision here, when I first saw this place, remember when we first came to look at it, there's a possibility. The impression, what I saw, first of all, well, I didn't want another stately home or kind of mansion, you know, that, that was, you know, you had to refurbish according, you know, because I didn't want a, a listed building, you know, where you're bound to, to re, to rebuild it or refurbish it in a certain way. Fortunately, Chitter's house was not a listed building. But uh, so we could pretty much rebuild it the way we wanted. But but they, uh, I didn't want to get stuck with like with Manjusri Institute had this listed as Cornishead Priory, and they, oh, they had to they had to replace the Italian plasterwork that had fallen down off the ceiling. Imagine, you know, this incredibly beautiful ornate plaster 
ceiling that that the that they you know the, the original ceiling was all these like grapes and all these cupids and everything on the ceiling in plaster that uh, only they could reproduce in Italy. Imagine trying to get this Italian over to just replace a plaster ceiling. How costly that would be. <laughs> so uh, I wasn't looking for that. So I was quite happy to see this kind of funky barrack-like building. Uh, uh, utilitarian and practical at least. And they're certainly not going to be listed as treasures of British architecture. So, so then we could, you know, eventually build a temple. So the vision, though, was sky. I thought this Amravati to me is space, spacious. And it's like you're living under a huge dome so open, exposed on top of a hill. Titters is forest to me. This is how I is forest, living in the forest. And and then Amaravati is like living out on top of the hill, exposed to this vast space, the perception of sky, space, infinity. And strangely enough, that was the that was the uh, in terms of my feeling the things that were resonating like the axis mundi and that and chitters and this sense of infinity infinite space sky seemed to almost lean onward like the almost like I don't know what what's Affecting what, but it, 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 it certainly was, uh, you know, something that seemed to to be very much uh, symbolic and also a symbol pointing to where I happen to be, you know, the kind of insight and needs of the of my own my own personal practice. So, offering this as a reflection, uh, what I'm saying is, don't let things get you down. Uh, sympathetic rejoicing. <laughs> Inconceivably vast oceans of good actions. And this, this brings me out of myself a lot, is it, it really, you know, rejoicing in the good actions of humanity, rather than just always being aware of of the violent, the criminal, the sleazy, the corrupt, the perverted, the, the meanness that is so much what we get in the news reports. This British politics, I've never seen anything so ugly. Uh, The way they go at each other, they're constantly kind of abusing each other. I mean, you must have to have a hide like a rhino to be be a politician in this country. And and then Tony Blair, quite idealistic, I believe, and, and you know, he's he's trying to defend his. His party and the Tories are saying, making fun. You know, you promised all these things and you're not here, and you're a failure, and and Labour Party is no good, and going on. You know, really condemning everything that the Labour Party's done. Nothing worthwhile, and they've been in five, six years now. And then Tony Blair getting on the defensive. Well, if you look at the statistics, you will find that. <laughs> They are more policemen now than they were under the Tories. <laughs> really, really kind of poor guy just trying to, you know, kind of exasperating the statistics and the facts. And everybody's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. 